Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning, good morning, everyone. So good to see you. So good to be together. Nice hot summer day, summer week, right? Anyone get to the beach this week in all that heat? A couple of us. Some people are enthusiastically clapping about that. That's good. Yes, it is a hot week. It is a great time. It's the middle of summer. So, so good to be together. So, I had a question for you, which is, uh, is anyone here familiar with the language that they call Pig Latin? A few people are familiar with it, right? All right. So, I don't know if you're not sure about this. Pig Latin is not a real language. Actually, that's half question, half statement. Pig Latin? Pig Latin is not a real language, right? It's not. Okay. So for those of you who know it, you know it's, it's not. It's code language that, that kids use to speak. All right. So uh, it's 1988. I'm in the fourth grade, so now you know how old I am. And um, for some reason, my fourth grade teacher decides to do like a unit in school on Pig Latin. And that does not seem like it should be a thing. I don't know if my kids learned Pig Latin. I doubt it. It should not be a thing. But nonetheless, we had this Pig Latin unit. And I remember at the end, we had this packet. It was really thick. We had to like do all this Pig Latin within the packet. And for some reason, though I studied and I was trying, it just wasn't clicking or it wasn't icking clay. Do you know what I'm saying? No? All right. So those of you who know Pig Latin know that I just demonstrated quite a mastery of the language right there. So... Uh, for some reason, it just wasn't clicking, okay? So I, I do this packet. I guess I do the best I can. I might have been a little lazy about it. And um, I get a U, and a U stands for unsatisfactory. And unsatisfactory in my fourth grade class was like a nice way of giving you an F, all right? So uh, because I got a U for unsatisfactory, I had to have my parents go and sign this, this packet acknowledging my grade. Um, so I'm very nervous about bringing home this very poor grade to my parents. So I come up with a plan and I take something that my mom had previously signed. You know where this is going, but this wasn't your regular, you know, freehand forgery. Uh, because what I did was I, I, I took a piece of tracing paper and I colored it with a pencil to create a type of carbon paper. And then I took my mom's signature and the carbon paper and I recreated, the, it's a diabolical, right? For a fourth grader, am I right? So, uh, so I, I do it, I think it looks pretty good. I bring it into my teacher, my teacher's like, did your mom sign this? And I'm like, uh, yes. And uh, obviously, she didn't believe me. She calls my parents, sends it home, and now it's going to be a thing, all right? So I get home. My parents are obviously extremely upset. The, my mom with the classic, wait till your dad gets home. We're going to, you know, we're going to have a talking with you. And I'm waiting in fear for hours until my dad gets home. And, uh, and I remember uh, my parents were feeling so many things. They were angry. They were afraid because it looked like I had no choice but to just be a white-collar criminal. Like, they figured that's what they raised, right? So uh, um, um, my dad comes in, they're yelling at me, and, and, you know, I'm being grounded forever. Then all of a sudden, so I've got the packet sitting on the table, and we're in the living room, and my parents are really giving it to me. And then my brother, four years older than me, my brother Shane, he comes down, and he sees this thing on the paper, and he picks it up, and he starts looking at it. And the three of us who are having our little dialogue freeze and look over at him, and he's like, 
Just this is actually pretty good. And my parents got twice as angry. They got so upset. My grounding got doubled. Thanks for nothing, bro. Listen, uh, I tell you this story because, uh, one, don't try this at home if you're a kid. Uh, two, uh, this stands out to me in my mind as maybe the first time that I remember feeling like a profound sense of guilt, like an awareness of hiding and then being found out. And I remember the whole thing so vividly. So we've been in this series called High Fidelity. And the idea behind it is that something that's recorded in high fidelity sounds exactly like the original. And so too, our discipleship to Jesus is a journey in which we are seeking to allow for him to transform us to become just like Christ, just like the original, to become more of the people that we were actually created to be. But guilt, I would say, binds us up in that journey. It causes us to run away, to hide, to cover ourselves up. And I would say that the release from those things that bind us up, that get in the way, that serve as obstacles to this full life that God desires for us, the release for that comes in a practice called confession. Now, you hear that, "Uh uh-oh, we're talking about confession today? You're like leaning over to your significant other, like, hey, get your things. I just realized we have to be somewhere. Like, now, I don't want to talk about this. But I will say this. Confession is the thing that clears the way and makes it possible for us to lean into the things that we've been talking about in this series, about abiding in Christ, abiding in the vine, in practicing joy and allowing for the salvation of God to inform our joy, in singing together and worshiping and practicing those things together. What clears the way, you know, I had this image, there's this movie in my mind, I just can't figure out what movie it is, where, uh, you know, I feel like there's like some kind of chase scene and they're running through a cornfield and they're like chopping through the corn as they're going, and it's like paving the way as they go. If anyone figures out what movie's in my mind, let me know. I just can't place it. But that's kind of like what confession is. It's like walking through, and it's chopping, and it's clearing and paving the way for us to abide in Christ and to worship Christ and to experience his joy. And I am not talking about confession as an act in and of itself, but what it is that confession accomplishes in us and what it is that it declares about God. You know, when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, uh, he starts off, uh, you're familiar, if you know this song, sing along, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. These are really exciting things. You're feeling this connection with God, and Jesus is teaching us to pray this way, and then all of a sudden, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There it is. It's confession. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And when James writes about how we might access the power of God in community to heal and to make things whole in the way that God intends for us, James encourages us to confess our sins to one another and pray for each other that we might be healed. And yet, The whole concept, for some reason, makes us very uncomfortable, doesn't it? 
I mean, if I said right now, hey guys, we are going to break up into groups of three or four, get into circles, and we're just going to start like confessing to each other. For those of you who didn't leave earlier, you're like, okay, well, we're out of here, right? No? All right, let's do it then. Come on. You think I'm bluffing? No, I am bluffing, actually. We won't actually do it. But it would make us uncomfortable a bit because there's something about this that does make us uncomfortable. And I think to understand what the Bible has to say about this and why it makes us so uncomfortable, we need to explore what's happening. And I think that we can do that in three sort of movements, so to speak. Hiding, pursuit, and freedom. Hiding, pursuit, and freedom. We'll start with hiding. So guys, our tendency to hide is not an original story. So on the opening pages of your Bibles, God creates everything and he calls it good. So the earth, the land and the sea, the birds in the sky, the fish in the, in the water, all everything that crawls upon the earth, God creates it all. And he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. Five times over, he says, it's good. And then he creates men and he creates women together. And he invites them to partner with him in the cultivation of his world. And he says, man, that is very good. And the humans go on and they, they live in the best of God's world, living in the way that he intended for them to live. And the scriptures say that Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame in the fullness of that state of who God created them to be. And this is a statement about the condition of their souls. Naked and unashamed means nothing to hide from one another and nothing to hide from God. Just their true selves in every way. And it's very, very good. But before long, the humans decide to reorder God's definition of what's good and define what's good for themselves. And as a result, everything goes downhill from there. And immediately, the condition of their souls change. Because now all of a sudden, now that they've redefined good and evil for themselves, they have to sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Not an original story. So the very first humans go from being naked and unashamed to covering themselves and hiding. And we have been covering ourselves and hiding ever since. We hide with lots of different things in lots of different ways. We hide with secrecy, even from ourselves, refusal to really see what's going on inside our own hearts. We hide with distraction. We just had this amazing series, To Hell with the Hustle, talking about how the busyness in our lives and devices and all the various things that we use to occupy ourselves and distract us from seeing what's going on inside of our hearts. It's one of the ways in which we hide. We hide with denial, right? Oh, you know, I don't really, I'm doing okay. I mean, listen, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that guy, so I have that, right? And our Western culture promotes denial about sin and its impact on our lives on so many different levels. And honestly, we don't even need to look further back than our own childhood, our own upbringing, or even how it is that we might function in our own home. So I'm the son of Indian immigrants, 
And, um, you know, some of the other South Asians in the room or East Asians in the room who come from similar paradigms might resonate. So I will say that growing up in our home, listen, we encountered some really difficult things, some debilitating hardships, cycles of failure and even hopelessness. We, uh, there were times that I feel like as a family, it was just, it was just full on despair dealing with the things that had come in to our lives and into our home. But we wouldn't dare let anyone in our community know about that. And, and it's, it's, it's because how could we go and let these other families know what's going on in our family when their families are so perfect? Or, or were they? Or maybe it was just that all of us were just doing the exact same thing, right? And, and, you know, not every culture necessarily comes from that sort of honor-shame paradigm, but for sure some of you resonate. And I will say that though not every culture operates from that paradigm, I think the concept exists and extends in some way to every family and every culture, right? Some version of what will people think, yeah? And if you grew up churched, we would often speak of freedom in the gospel, but oftentimes, we would be promoting freedom publicly, but inwardly, we were troubled and alone. And maybe that's still true. Maybe that's still true in this room. Maybe that's still true on this stage. We figure we can sort out our private issues in private and keep up appearances in public. In John chapter 8, uh, there's a story of a woman who I would imagine got ready on her wedding day and got ready to walk up the aisle to her fiancé, soon to be her husband, to say, I do. And I can't imagine that as she was going through that process, she had ever planned to be an adulterer. But some innocent interactions with a man who's not her husband slowly develop into more and more, and before she knew it, she's neck deep in an affair. And one morning, she sneaks out of the house and goes over to his house to be with him. When all of a sudden, knock, 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 a priest comes and barges through the door and catches them in the act. And what does that priest do? He grabs her by the arm, he pulls her by her hair, and hauls her out of that room across town and throws her at the feet of Jesus. And, he, and, the, and the priest says to Jesus in that moment, he says, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And he goes up to Jesus using this woman as a prop, saying, you're going to disagree with Moses, Jesus? What are you going to do? There's a lot to be said about what's happening here and the way that Jesus responds, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I couldn't help but think about this woman. What is she thinking and feeling in that moment? There she is, eyes fixed on the ground, surrounded by this group of men who are about to judge her. She wouldn't dare look up at them. What is she feeling and thinking at that moment? How did, this, how did the priests know? Who else knows? Does my husband know? How long have they known? Now everybody knows. And everybody's going to know. What does it feel like when that first stone hits you? 
Because hiding is a tormenting lie. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. But hiding is the, the, our default position. And hiding slowly, insidiously messes us up in ways that we can't fully comprehend because it is not what we were created for. Frederick Buechner said it like this. He says, what we hunger for, perhaps more than anything else, is to be known in our full humanness. And yet that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. It's important to tell, at least from time to time, the secret of who we truly and fully are, because otherwise we run the risk of losing track of who we are, truly and fully are. And little by little, we come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth in hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. We lose track of who we truly and fully are. Why? Because hiding is exhausting. Lies upon lies, pretending upon pretending, with how are you doing, I'm fine. And it's exhausting. And there's this false notion, I think, in the church, that as we grow in spiritual maturity, that that somehow means that we will confess less because we have less to confess, when in reality, I think the scriptures reveal that it is just the opposite. This is the reason why Jesus talks about it when he is teaching us to pray, because it's just the opposite. As we grow in maturity and relationship with Christ, we have a clearer sense of how deeply we are in need of his love and his forgiveness. Peeling back layer after layer and seeing that we need him. You know, as I prepare to, to teach, like, I, I go through this journey, you know? Like, I'm, it's so important for me that I just feel like I deeply download what it is that we're talking about and live it. And I go through this journey every time where it's like, I, I feel tormented in the early portion of my time preparing. Like, like Justin, like, like nobody's buying this. Like, you don't even really believe this, do you? And, and I feel like someone's like tormenting me with that. And, and what I've experienced, even in preparing this together, is learning more about the reality that God loves you and me more than we could possibly, possibly imagine. And that as we grow in our awareness of our need for him, he welcomes us in. But friends, it is so easy for us to grow numb and grow, a sense, uh, grow numb to our sense of guilt and forget who we are. Forget that we are actually hiding. You pull out your phone and you start scrolling through Instagram so you don't have to think about it. Or, or you, you, you just keep others out so you don't have to talk about it. Or, you know, we, we just try to ignore it, but it will always, always come back. So how? How do we get back? And, and friends, I would say that we will keep hiding until we see this true and real framework of God and the world in which we live, which is that God is a God of pursuit. He is a God of pursuing 
love. So if we go back to the opening pages of the Bible that we were just talking about, after the humans rebel against God and they cover themselves and they hide, God shows up on the scene with two questions, right? They're hiding from God among the trees of the garden and God comes to them and asks two questions. One, where are you? And two, who told you that you were naked? One commentator rephrased it like this, who stole my children's innocence? And so it begins. So it begins, the pursuit. God's pursuit, his pursuing love, chasing after you and chasing after me. And church, we need a new framework in this regard, seeing that God is a God of pursuing love, a pursuit that began from the very moment that humanity fell. You know, we are hard-pressed to come before God and confess because we feel like God has his back turned toward us and that we need to come sheepishly and tap him on the shoulder and say, oh God, would you please just give me another chance? But that is not the God of the Bible. That is not Yahweh that we read about and that we experience. In fact, it's not God who has his back toward us. It is us who has our backs toward God. God himself is a pursuing God. He is pursuing love. He is coming after you. He is coming toward you. And our backs are toward him. And what he's asking for from us is that we would just turn around and that we would just walk toward him. And, and you know, God's love is a pursuing love, but I would say that my biggest problem is believing that. And I think that's the thing that makes me reluctant to come toward him. But the biblical story is just a, an anthology. It is just 66 books of this, of a, of a pursuing love of God chasing after his people. It's a story. The, the Old Testament, your Hebrew Bibles, is this story of a pursuing God pursuing his people. Then Jesus comes onto this scene, and the theme of his life is that he leaves the 99 to go after the one. And, and then the apostles start writing the epistles about the birth of the church, and all of it is this message that the good news about Jesus Christ is for everyone. And then Revelation, we read this beautiful reunion of all things where God's pursuit culminates with this perfect coming together. God's pursuit of us and our confession is an act of two parties running toward each other. You know, we've been looking at uh, a lot of these Psalms of David. I've deeply appreciated it. Trevor, in the last couple of weeks, has brought up a few Psalms of David. Uh, it's been so good to see. Now, you look at David. David is a lot of things. David is an adulterer, for sure. David is a murderer, for sure. David, depending on how you read it, uh, maybe a rapist. This is who David is, and yet the, the Scriptures describe David after a, man's a man after God's own heart. How? How is that possible? but for the fact that David seemed to understand God's heart in a very rich way. How do we know this? Because David kept a journal, and that journal is smack dab in the middle of our Bibles. And so many of the Psalms that he wrote are riddled with this idea. Psalm 139, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David is inviting the Spirit of God to show him his sin because he knows that confession is, in fact, a terrifying gift that is available to him. And he invites 
God, to, the Spirit of God to search his heart. And after he commits murder, and after he commits adultery, I love that we sang this, Trevor, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here. Creating me a clean heart, remember? Because what, what David is doing here, in the, in the depth of his, like, uh, sin, of, of the ways that he messed things up, he comes before God and he turns toward him and he does what Adam did not do, what Adam could not do. David actually does it in some small way. He turns and goes toward God because he knows God's heart and he knows that God's heart is one of pursuit. And he comes before him and he says, I've made a mess, but if you will wash me, then I will be clean. Your salvation is what brings me joy. David ran toward God as God was running toward him. And when we see that, and like David, when we run toward a God who is running toward us, we find freedom. So let's pick up our story from John chapter 8. The, the, the priests have brought this woman before Jesus to set a trap for him. What are you going to do, Jesus? The law of Moses says that we should stone her. So you're going to disagree with Moses or what? And if you read the story at the early verses of John chapter 8, it seems like after an awkwardly long time of them asking Jesus and him not really responding just yet, Jesus kind of crouches down and he writes something in the dirt and then he gets up and he's like, all right, go ahead and stone her. But, Whichever one of you is without sin, he gets to cast the first stone. And if you know the story, one at a time, starting with the older ones who had a greatest awareness of who they were, they start dropping the stones. One commentator I was reading was talking about how this woman standing there in the middle, she must have flinched when those stones were dropped, right? Because she's expecting to feel what that first stone hitting her is going to feel like. And after all of the people had dropped their stones and left, Jesus comes up to her and he looks her in the face. He said, where'd, every, where'd everyone go? Has no one condemned you? And she says, yeah, no, no, one, no one condemned me. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And the amazing part is that this is the story that she will go on telling for the rest of her. The very part of her story that she was trying to hide, it was just maybe a, a few hours or maybe even shorter before this happened that she was tippy-toeing from her house to his house, looking behind her, making sure that no one saw. And for sure, for days or months or years or whatever it was before that, it was a life of hiding. I hope no one finds out who I am and what I am doing. And yet, now, that same story is the one that she's going to be telling for the rest of her life. Because that's the kind of God that, that's the kind of author that God is. He redeems our worst moments so that they become the irreplaceable ones in our lives. Eugene Peterson said it like this. He says, God does not deal with our sin by ridding our lives of it as if it were a germ or mice in an attic. 
God does not deal with sin by amputation as if it were a gangrenous leg leaving us crippled, holiness on a crutch. God deals with sin by forgiving us. And when he forgives us, there is more of us, not less. There is more of us, not less. So our greatest failures become the greatest victories because of who God is and what God has done. We hide because we believe that we are just too ugly and too unlovable to be seen without covering ourselves with fig leaves. But the beauty of the good news about Jesus Christ is that we are made beautiful. We are washed clean, white as snow. We don't need to cover ourselves with those fig leaves. Why? Because Jesus hung on a cross and absorbed all of the shame that goes along with that for you and for me. And that he took on our deformity. He took on our shame so that we get his beauty. We get his perfection. A price was paid when he gave his life on the cross. And we are made new by his resurrection. And so confession is not the admission of failure. It is a declaration of triumph. Yes, amen. This is good news. This is good news, church. Confession is a declaration of victory and a celebration of God's triumph. So when James talks about us confessing our sins to one another and praying for each other so that we might be healed, listen, that word confess is in the vein of, of uh, you know, to agree with something, to admit to something, yes, to say the same thing as someone else. So confess, say the same thing with respect to your sins. What he's getting at is confession is saying the same thing as God does about our sin, bringing ourselves into alignment with him, having the same perspective on our sin as God. And for sure, confession involves an act of turning. It's not God that has his back turned towards me. It's me that has my back turned towards God. But when I confess, what I am doing is I am turning toward him. And what that also means is that I am turning away from something and turning toward God. In theology, what we call repentance, yeah? Turning toward God and coming toward a God who is coming toward me, who has been pursuing me since he started with those two questions. Where are you and who told you you were naked? Coming after us. And that exposure, that freedom of being seen for who we are and trading our our deformity for Christ's beauty placed upon us, not because of anything that we did, but because of what Christ did for you and for me, then we get to stand there in the full freedom of exposure before a God who loves you, who is committed to you in ways that you can't imagine. And these are the stories that we must tell and that we will go on telling over and over and over again because they are stories about a God who draws straight lines with crooked sticks. We think that spiritual maturity means we're going to confess less. And I believe what it means is that we will become a community of confession and we will experience healing 
as we do so. So how do we do it? Well, the reason why David felt safe going before God, asking him to search his heart and spirit, and, and asking God to create in him a clean heart, is because the space in front of God's presence is safe. And the reason why David's a man after God's own heart is because he knew that. So what is it going to mean? What is it going to look like for us, bearers of the presence of Jesus, to be safe people for one another? People who are trustworthy, people who are loving and compassionate and empathetic toward one another. And I'm not saying that you necessarily need to go and confess all the things that you're discovering about yourself to everyone. But we should be willing to connect with others with whom we feel safe. And as we start to become people who are safe people and create safe spaces, well, then it's going to be much easier for us to start to connect with one another with whom we feel safe. And then would we confess to one another and pray for one another. And listen, it's not going to be a confession necessarily about adultery or murder or something so dramatic, but would we be willing to do the hard work of peeling through the layers of what is going on in our heart and seeing what it is and the ways in which we are so prone to just turn our back from God and continue to redefine what is good and what is evil on our own? Would we be willing to turn back toward God and see a God who is pursuing us? And as we do that, as we confess to one another and pray for one another, would we bear the grace of Jesus to one another? That's what it means that we are in a community of faith. We are bearers of the presence of Jesus to one another. Will we hear each other and love one another and patiently uh, journey with one another? And just as Jesus said to that woman, would we come to each other with the posture of neither do I condemn you and journey with them together to the presence of a God who is in pursuit of them. And the amazing part about this church is that these wounds that we're hurt by, in the power of the gospel, they get healed and scars remain and the stories of those scars are the very thing that God uses to heal his world. That's what he's getting at. James is getting at. That these stories and these wounds that turn into scars, those are the very stories that heal God's world, that heal us, that heal our community. As we tell these stories and show people everywhere that they too can be healed. These are the stories we must keep telling. These are the stories we will keep telling for the rest of our lives. But only when we take that first step and turn around together, arm in arm, as a community, turn around and go toward a God who is running toward us. Confession is a declaration of victory, a declaration of God's triumph. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So God, we are... We are so grateful and in awe of the fact that you are a God who loves us in ways that we cannot fully wrap our head around. That you are a pursuing 
God, one who comes after us. That from the very beginning, the very first time that humanity fell, you came after us. And though humanity had to leave the garden at that moment, that you went with us. And you continue to be with us and continue to chase after us. God, would we run toward you, the God who is running toward us? Would we come out of hiding? Would we experience the fullness and the freedom of what it means to be fully exposed before you, fully exposed before one another? Would we go on and tell these stories for the rest of our lives of you, this God who has made broken people whole by the power of the gospel? So we love you. We thank you. We're eager to see what you're going to do in our community as we lean lean in toward this together. We pray this in Jesus' name. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.